Hey, it's Antoinette, and welcome to another episode of the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast. In today's episode, we are talking all about the microbiome and how essential it is for healthy hormones. We're going to dive deep into estrogen metabolism, including understanding the astrobolome and what foods you need to eat and how to optimize the strain of probiotics you choose. My guest today is Dr. Kristen Spark, and I'm so excited for her to share her knowledge, her clinical expertise, and research about how we can optimize our microbiome for superior hormone health. So without further ado, here we go. Welcome to the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast, a podcast about female empowerment through menstrual cycle health, the true heartbeat of your hormone status. With each episode, we'll explore the foundations of hormone health with science, soulful, and heartfelt conversations, a dash of sass, and feminine pizzazz. Our dream is to arm you with exactly what you need to be an unstoppable female force, ready to achieve all that your heart desires and embrace your inner goddess. And here's your host, naturopathic doctor, birth doula, fertility awareness educator, hormone enthusiast, and lover of pretty things, Antoinette Falco. Welcome, Dr. Spark. It's so amazing to have you on today's interview. I can't wait to chat about the super important topic about the microbiome and hormone health because I think it is so essential and it's often an area that isn't, isn't talked about enough when it comes to hormone health and alternative healthcare and what that looks like. Thanks for having me. All right, let's jump right in. Let's get to having you share a little bit more about what led you to do the work that you do. You focus a lot on women's health, and I love to hear a bit about your background and perhaps your story and what led you to where you are today. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again for having me. And um, I'm excited to kind of, you know, dive into the microbiome and hormonal health. So I guess I started um, this journey when I was quite young. I've always been fascinated with nutrition and and, um, health. And I was, as a young child, brought into the kitchen at an early age and, you know, the importance of healthy eating and fruits and vegetables was instilled in me very young by my family. Um, I was a competitive dancer when I was younger. So nutrition was not just, you know, the food that you put in your body, but also fuel for performance. Um, And then I kind of was streamlining towards becoming a medical doctor when I was in university. And I was in pre-medical sciences at Western University in London, Ontario. And I was, I started to develop my own hormonal health problems. I experienced amenorrhea, which is lack of a menstrual cycle. And this has happened to me since I had, had I, I had got my period initially. And um, I was obviously confused. And I went to go and see my, um, at the time, it was the nurse practitioner at um, university. And basically, I was given an option. And that option was the birth control in order to get my period back. And I use air quotes for that, because as you know, (laughs) getting your period back, you don't get it from a pill. So anyway, that was a really dissatisfying experience I had with the mainstream medical system. And I went to go and see a naturopath myself. And it was just this like awakening of, 
okay, there is something else out there in, in healthcare. There is another option. And we talked about food and healthy fats and nutritional adequacy and what it takes to regulate a, a menstrual cycle. And that to me was just such an amazing conversation. And that was really, I switched gears from becoming a medical doctor and I moved um, my focus on becoming a naturopathic doctor. And then in my studies of naturopathic medicine at um, the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto, I actually Peru and went on a medical brigade. We did lots of um, medical volunteering at that time. And I came back from Peru after being there for a month with extreme gut health issues. I was tested for parasites. I was, no one had an answer for me as to why I was experiencing the symptoms that I had. And so I kind of had to take my health into my own hands. And I, in university, also had complete a micro internship. So I did a specific year-long internship focusing on microbiology. So I got to really understand specifically bacteria. And I kind of became fascinated with bacteria colonization in our, in our gut health and the microbiome. And I looked at my own digestive issues at that time from a microbiome perspective. And, you know, I was able to, I was able to, again, working with a naturopath at my side, I was able to write my health and get things back in into alignment with, you know, feeling good and digesting well, and a lot of my symptoms resolved. So it was through my own experiences that I actually, you know, developed these passions and these interest areas in hormonal health and digestive health. It's a very familiar story that I'm hearing from a lot of the guests that I interview. And it's this, it's this piece in self-education. I think the fact that practitioners have gone through this journey themselves and are able to lead, it's, it's a twofold example, right? You've mm -hmm. experienced it yourself so you can offer nuances that perhaps we didn't learn about in medical school. And you can also offer like that science from, and the clinical evidence and treatment options that you did learn in school. So I love, it's, it's really taking people on this journey, helping them approach all aspects of whatever their health situation is in a very holistic way, really. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Can you explain a bit about the connection between hormone health and the gut slash microbiome, which is what we're talking about today? Yeah. Absolutely. So there is definitely a connection between estrogen and digestion, estrogen metabolism and digestion. So when we are looking at estrogen, it's um, in a woman that has a menstrual cycle, estrogen is made in the ovaries by the ovaries, as is progesterone. We need to actually be able to break that estrogen down. And we classically think of two phases when we're thinking about metabolism, phase one and phase two detoxification of by the liver. And your liver has a bunch of different enzymes that help to break down estrogens, um, all different forms of estrogens, and um, they get packaged up by phase one and phase two detoxification and shipped out into the colon. And they are on their way exiting the body to be eliminated through stool when they get into contact with the colonic 
estrobilome, which basically is the large intestine microbiome that is specifically capable of metabolizing estrogens. So in your gut, you have bacteria that can actually break down estrogens. And we have some bacteria that actually create something called beta-glucuronidase, which deconjugates estrogen, so makes them available to be reabsorbed back into the body. So this actually, the estrobilome is, we want to ensure that the microbiome is working effectively and in our favor to continue to detoxify estrogens out of the body. There are some types of bacteria, as I mentioned, that are really good at deconjugating estrogens and getting them back into their active form where they get reabsorbed. And this is not necessarily a good thing because that means that our estrogen is not effectively being eliminated and it's actually building up in the body. I love the word estrobilum. It's such a, such a fun word. It is. <laughs> but no, all kidding aside, I think it's a really important concept. And you, you said it perfectly by you know saying that we don't want the estrogen to be reabsorbed because therefore mm -hmm. leading to a condition where you'd have estrogen dominance, where you'd have too much estrogen in your system. And you know we know that that can affect the other hormones in your cycle and it can also cause symptoms, unfavorable symptoms, which mm -hmm. are also very annoying for a lot of women and, and uncomfortable and often are, I'm sure, what bring them into your office wondering what's mm -hmm. wrong with them. Mm -hmm. On that note, can you share some cases of maybe the patients that you've worked with in your practice where you really noticed that there was a significant improvement in their hormonal symptoms when you started working on the gut? Yeah, absolutely. So I would generally say that there are two types of women that um, come in to see me um, where I'm specifically thinking about the estrobilone. So one would be those women that come in and they want to focus on their IBS. And after we have tackled their IBS, they then bring up, you know, my um, period has changed. I've noticed that there's some differences in my pain. So their PMS is, um, you know, changed. And so we started off by looking at gut health and we actually had an effect on sort of secondary and, and possibly tertiary hormonal health problems like PMS or hormonal acne, um, even hormonal migraines. So um, that's case number one, where gut health was the top priority, and then we got these nice hormonal benefits. The second category of women that I see, they come in and they want to work on their hormonal issues. So they want to work on their acne. They want to work on PMDD. They really want to work on uterine fibroid size or you know symptoms, heavy menstrual bleeding. And so in order to effectively treat these women, we have to consider the estrobilone. So we're starting with a hormonal issue, but we are, of course, looking at hormone levels with blood work. We are definitely, you know, incorporating some detoxification and supporting liver, but we are also definitely including phase three through the colon, addressing any dysbiosis or any imbalance of their flora, of their, of their microbiome bacteria. And this is why your menstrual cycle is a vital sign. Because you get to learn so much about your body and then you get to see like, oh, things are actually improving in my body. And you can see that through your cycles and your periods, which 
is just fantastic and mm-hmm. something that I love seeing women come and, and speak about and share about because it's really awesome. Okay. When it comes to your top three foods that are, I'm going to say essential for gut health, mm-hmm. um, where do you recommend that women start? You know, cause we, we hear about, you know, well, you can just have yogurt and it's going to like give you all the probiotics you need and probiotics are good. What would you say to that point specifically. And then if you can make some recommendations. So food is one of my foundational topics with women Mm -hmm. and for the gut, I have been preaching (laughs) about fiber. I really do believe that people are not getting enough fiber these days, especially to maintain a healthy microbiome. So that is where I'm always reminding patients of Canadian guideline is for fiber. And, but then, which is 25 grams, if, if people don't know that. And, and what is that in terms at, of a serving of something? So it's actually a lot more than you think. So if you were to have, a, you know, a half a cup of lentils, you would be getting about eight to 10 grams of fiber in your Um, from your lentils. So it's a good amount of fiber from that source. But the problem is not everyone's eating a half a cup of cooked lentils every day. And that's only possibly, you know, a third or or less than 50% of your daily intake. I talk to patients who are on a keto diet and I'm like, this is not the best diet for your hormones because of the low amount of of fiber in that diet. Um, So fiber is my top food. There's actual research about MACs, which are microbiota accessible carbohydrates. So a specific type of carbohydrate that's found that that is a fermentable um, fiber source and the benefits of that on your microbiome. So fiber, number one, number one thing that I've been focusing on personally for my own hormonal health. And also I'm definitely reminding patients you need to get more, not just for colon cancer prevention, but because it is so important for maintaining the microbiome. So um, my fiber favorite, favorite fiber foods are Mm. uh, beans, legumes, pulses. I love whole grains like wild rice or quinoa, oatmeal corn. I love buckwheat myself. Um, I'll definitely get people doing more, you know, potatoes and squash and, and yams and of course, fruits and fruits and vegetables. But the surprising thing I find is people think, oh, I'm having a huge salad for lunchtime. I'm getting lots of fiber from my salad. And the truth is romaine lettuce actually has very little fiber in it. You'll get way more fiber from that salad if you added a half a cup of cooked wild rice to your salad or your power bowl. So fiber is my number one food um, because it's a prebiotic and it feeds the microbiome. And again, research shows us that when we have an adequate amount of, of fiber and those max in the diet, we actually have an, an improved, better, more beneficial microbiome, more of the good bacteria. My second food would be fermented food. And I do incorporate some of those into my treatment plans for sure. Things like yogurt, uh, kefir, sauerkraut, kimchi, kimchi, kombucha. I will you know, suggest some pickled beets, that kind of thing. But Um, Generally speaking, I don't use that as the primary source of probiotics because I just don't think that it's necessarily enough when we're trying to affect the microbiome, Um, but it's good for maintenance and it's great for overall health. So I do think fermented foods are a good thing to be including in a diet. And then my last category of favorite foods for gut health would be bitters. 
And again, I don't think that people are eating enough of these. I think we're all preoccupied with sweet flavor and we have kind of forgotten about bitter flavor as one of your primary flavors. So um, things like dandelion greens or arugula salads, even you know some apple cider vinegar before a meal. Sometimes I'll get patients if they're really, really not loving the idea of apple cider vinegar, I'll get them to do something like some lemon juice before a meal, just a small amount of water before. And I love the bitters because they are stimulating appetite, number one. They're getting the juices flowing. So they're actually getting your cell saliva flowing. They are stimulating gastric acid secretion, and they are telling your liver that you should be anticipating a meal. So you're really focusing on, on getting the organs of digestion um, working and flowing, which is what we need for optimal digestion. And who doesn't love a good arugula salad? I mean, you can throw some beets in there, some sweet potatoes, make it, make all the flavors in, in it, one. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't have to be just purely bitter. It can be bitter plus something delicious, but it has to have that bitter component. And I think that's what we're lacking. Mm-hmm. No, you bring up a really good point. I think we, we get used to, you know, if you're eating sweets or sweetened things, lots of fruit, lots of maybe juices, and your your body gets used to that component. Your tongue gets used to that. And then we neglect bitters, which are really important for priming digestion. And it's the first step of getting things flowing. So mm-hmm. I love that you brought and, that up. Yeah. And I mean, they're used in some, some cultures traditionally too. I know um, in um, the Netherlands or um, I believe it's maybe Belgium and the Netherlands, they harvest the dandelions that start to grow in the spring. And that's just part of the culture where people are, you know, actually using these, what we would consider to be a weed. <laughs> They're using them for the purpose of detoxification, but also as a digestive bitter. So um, Swedish bitters, that's something that people will start to use to up to promote gastric acid secretion. So these are things that, you know, we've kind of taken from, traditional routines and different cultures and and they actually are there for a purpose which I think is really cool. My grandmother definitely would go with her her siblings and they would go to the side of the road and this is here, you know, in Ontario and they would pick the dandelions from the side of the of the street and then they would bring them home and cook them and that's what they would eat. Like I remember as a kid like it was like kind of this stew with the different types of greens. I mean, obviously they would wash them and they had to be careful that it wasn't an area where there was like a lot of like pesticide use. But I just remember like as a kid being like, that's so weird. Why are you doing that? And then as (laughs) I got older, I was like, this is really awesome because like dandelion is so good for you. And what better way than, you know, to try and get it, try and get it locally, right? Yeah. Forage that dandelion when you can. (laughs) Love it. Okay. So aside from food, are there any lifestyle factors that can influence gut health, which in turn would affect women's hormone health? Definitely. Right from birth. So I will, as I'm going through, you know, a consultation with some of my clients, I will actually ask them, do you know if you were 
vaginal birth baby or were you a C-section baby? So right from birth, the way in which you are birthed um, can affect your microbiome. That and also breastfeeding, those that those babies that are breastfed versus formula fed, there's a difference in the microbiome. So it starts right away. And then, you know, there's other lifestyle factors such as how many antibiotics have you used? Were they, you know, especially oral antibiotics that you swallow a pill that's going to go through your microbiome and is just going to wipe out some of, you know, the majority of the good uh, bacteria. So antibiotic use, I ask about travel history. So if people, you know, if they experienced any traveler's diarrhea, was there any episodes of food poisoning? Did they happen to travel to an area that might have an an endemic parasite or an endemic pathogen of some kind? So just to give you an example of that, Giardia in North America is a very common parasite um, that you can get just by having unsanitized water or, or swimming in a lake, that kind of thing. So travel history is very important. Um, of course, we want to look at someone's immune status. So for those patients of mine or you know clients or, or people that maybe have an autoimmune condition and they are on um, some sort of biologic or autoimmune medication, their microbiome is at a higher risk of of changing and becoming what we would call dysbiotic. In certain microbes can be passed between family members. We see this a lot with young kids that end up with parasites. So family, family can be a contributing factor to changing up your microbiome. Community or location of the world in which you live, that can influence the bacteria that you're exposed to and, and therefore your microbiome. Um, and lastly, I would say medications. So uh, certainly medications like antacid pills um, that doctors put patients on when they have heartburn or generally any kind of <laughs> digestive condition I've come to learn um, in my practice. Those basically shut down your gastric acid production and allow a lot more um, microbial entry into the small intestine um, because that stomach acid is generally there for a reason, right? It's there to break down proteins, break down carbs, break down fats, but also to kill any microbes that are coming in on the food. Um, so antacid medications, also medications like antidepressants, they affect gastric motility. There's other medications that affect gastric motility. So slowing down how how quickly food goes from basically your mouth to your rectum, that's your motility. And so some medications actually slow down that rate of transit through the intestines, which is a predisposing factor for things like small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which is, of course, a major microbiome issue. So yeah, there's a number of factors and, and I've seen all of these things contribute to dysbiosis. And it's very rare that you find people that are not on at least one medication. Yeah. And in like young women, and that might be birth control. We know that that Mm -hmm. has an effect on the microbiome. Wonderful. I think that's a very good list. Let's chat about probiotics because probiotics are totally this trendy topic that people, you know, they self-prescribe themselves probiotic based on commercials they see on TV or maybe they're family doctor, their MD might have recommended, oh, just take a probiotic for your gut mm-hmm. concerns. A line. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That's the one, that is the one you see on TV, right? And it's so yeah. easily available, <laughs> covered by plants. Yeah. So I want to talk more about this. 
When mm-hmm. should women consider supplementing with a probiotic? So like when I say when is like, you know, is it wise or is it advisable to start like as that, that that is the first thing that you introduce in your plan? And if you can speak to the difference between eating foods with probiotics and supplementing with a probiotic. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So women should consider supplementing uh, with a probiotic. Uh, definitely if, you know, I, I generally, I hesitate to say always start a probiotic because there are some women that I see that do have um, some more complex gastrointestinal symptoms. So if that is you and you are dealing with a lot of, you know, bloating or extreme fullness or um, lots of abdominal pain, it may not be wise to actually start a probiotic right off the bat um, because there might be something deeper going on like SIBO, the small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And when you have that condition, it's actually not indicated to add more probiotics into your body. Um, So in that sort of extreme gastric discomfort case, I would say hold off. But generally speaking, if you're a woman dealing with, you know, signs of unopposed estrogen or estrogen dominance symptoms, things like PMS or, you know, hormonal migraines, um, uterine fibroids, um, symptoms and, and, and signs of estrogen excess, it's likely not a bad idea to start a probiotic. And so for my patients that have those conditions, I definitely get them started on a probiotic in addition to some specific hormone, hormonal supports, plant-based and, and vitamin and food, of course. But even things like um, women that have yeast infections or have a history of urinary tract infections, definitely a probiotic is, is helpful. If you've been on rounds of antibiotics for lung infections or ear infections or skin infections, a great idea would be to use a probiotic. If you have the IBS symptoms or you have a, have a diagnosis of IBS, you may want to actually work with a practitioner that can guide you a little bit more specifically as to how to navigate when the right time to take a probiotic is, but likely you'll be using a probiotic. It's funny, you mentioned a line, and I think that a line is the classic one that um, you know most medical doctors have heard of. It's basically just lactobacillus acidophilus, and um, it has a lot of research because it's been manufactured by a drug company. So it's a great product, um, but it is typically the only recommendation that's given by gastroenterologists to the patients that I've seen. And when I you know, look at probiotics, I'm looking at a, a couple of different factors. So um, I'm looking at the strains that are within the probiotics. So this is kind of, this speaks to the difference of, you know, whether we want to just eat food or whether we want to use a supplement. So food-based probiotics is what I actually did my microbiology internship on. I worked with a dairy company specifically looking at the bacterial content of things like yogurt and cottage cheese and milk and different types of cheeses. So I can speak specifically to that. And food-based food-based bacteria is awesome. And it is our, our really great you know, way to maintain a, a healthy microbiome when that microbiome has has had some work done. So I would consider a food-based probiotic as more of a maintenance option or, you know, sort of an adjunctive. It's good to do, it's good to have the food in there 
um, but it maybe isn't you know your therapeutic dose. I use a supplement when I am trying to have an effect on the microbiome specifically. So um, I would you know encourage women to use a a probiotic that is a multi-strain probiotic. So it's got more than one strain. Um, and it's human microflora specific strains, which is not necessarily what we see in food-based probiotic or in food-based, yeah, food-based probiotics. So yogurt has lactobacillus acidophilus in it, which is one of our top beneficial bacteria, especially for women. Um, you get that from yogurt. The thing is, when you eat the yogurt, you have your stomach acid there, and it actually will degrade and break down and kill some of that healthy beneficial flora. That's the job of the stomach acid. So you're not getting as much into the large intestine, which is where most of your microbes are hanging out anyway. Um, you're not getting that much lactobacillus acidophilus from your yogurt into your large intestine. So when we're using a supplement, we're actually using an enteric coated supplement so it doesn't the cat that little capsule does not actually bust open in the stomach acid it opens up at the specific ph of the duodenum which is a more alkaline ph than the stomach so the capsules are actually made in in order to open at the right delivery location um, so that just makes them more therapeutic so I, I really think about probiotics as being a therapeutic option rather than sort of a, a maintenance food to maintain health. That's the way that I think about them and use them in my practice. So if you're a woman that is working on a hormonal condition specifically, then that is where probiotics that you're taking orally would become more of a prescription based. But if you're someone exactly. yeah, who's generally healthy and <clears throat> eats well and keeps moving and drinks water and all that great stuff and they just want to maintain, then that's where the food is really really helpful. Yeah, exactly. All right. So we were talking a lot about strains and I, I love talking about the nitty gritties because I think this brings up a very good point in terms of the research and what we have available to help practitioners, which then mm -hmm. educates the public about probiotic strains. We talked about lactobacillus acidophilus being really important for women are there any other specific strains? And maybe if you are aware of any research that specifically helps women's health related concerns or hormone health or vaginal concerns? Yeah. Yep, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I have three research topics that I thought would be interesting to share. So the first is the effect of lactobacillus acidophilus and bifidobacterium bifidum or bifidum, however you like to say it, um, on PMS. So those two bacterial strains have actually been shown to provide relief of some of the PMS symptoms when studied in women that have PMS that was severe. When they started the study, the PMS was, the symptoms were self-scored as being severe, and those symptoms actually were then self-scored to be mild after the study was complete. So um, we can see not only the restoration of the intestinal bacteria, but the actual reduction in, in premenstrual symptoms using lactobacillus acidophilus and bifidobacterium bifidum, which those are two very common strains that you'll find in most probiotics. The other that I wanted to discuss was again lactobacillus acidophilus on endometriosis. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a randomized 
placebo-controlled clinical trial, which we know is like the gold standard of assessing efficacy of, of something, of an intervention. And this was in the journal of the International Journal of Fertility and Sterility. And um, this was on endometriosis-related pain. And you know endometriosis is extremely difficult. Often women, you know, are facing infertility um, they are doubled over in pain. It affects the quality of life. It is a, a fairly, you know, extreme condition. And these women, unfortunately, are not, again, the options are kind of hormonal birth control to eliminate menses or hysterectomy if, you know, if it's ongoing. So what the study showed, what this randomized clinical trial showed us was that lactobacillus acidophilus helped to reduce endometriosis-related pain. So that's, I think, you know, you're just talking about bacteria, but it's improving endometriosis pain, which I think is awesome. That's um, huge. And it, yeah. Yeah. I love mm -hmm. it. And um, then the third study um, that I wanted to share was on a strain of bacteria called lactobacillus rhamnosus. So this, if you were um, interested in, in gynecology, this might be more familiar to you, but the study focuses on the use of lactobacillus rhamnosus in women that have recurrent urinary tract infections. And so, um, you know, they looked at the bacteria on its own, but also in combination with a couple other natural interventions like cranberry and vitamin C, did this for three months. What the female patients noticed was a, ma a massive reduction in their recurrent urinary tract infections. So again, you're just using cranberry, vitamin C, and a, and a bacterial strain, and it's actually helping to prevent these women from needing recurrent antibiotics and obviously all of the discomfort that comes along with a urinary tract infection. Those are kind of my articles of how things can improve, but I also wanted to just share that there are actual clinical studies that are looking at when things are not in alignment or not healthy, what can be an outcome? So there's studies that have looked at, you know, gut microbial diversity in women with PCOS. There are um, studies that have looked at the estrobolomes specifically um, of the vaginal and the gastrointestinal flora, the impact on endometriosis, on obesity, on cardiovascular disease, and on bone density in postmenopausal women. So not only do we know that the, that the bacteria can benefit, but when the bacteria aren't healthy, we can see negative consequences. And there's articles that highlight those, which is just all the more reason that women should really be thinking about their microbiome and the estrobolome when they are looking at hormone health and optimal health and wellness. Mm -hmm. Those are great examples. I wanted to yeah. ask about the PMS study. How long did they take the probiotic for in the study? I'm just curious. I believe it was, I believe it was three months. Okay. Normally, yep. normally you don't see, um, because it takes time to get that bacteria in, right? So normally it would be awesome if it was like two weeks mm -hmm. <laughs> and then it's done. But probiotics, they are, they're not a permanent colonization. They are a dynamic colonization. So you have to be sort of actively working at this over, you know, over some time. And um, it's important also that women know that just because you take a probiotic once doesn't mean you're your bacteria set. microbiome is now perfect. 
right? Mm -hmm. You, it's something that is an ongoing conversation and is, should be an ongoing um, thought for women is, you know, how are my, how is my microbiome? I, maybe I took an, a course of antibiotics. I need to take probiotics. Maybe I'm traveling to Cuba when, you know, we're able to travel and you might want to take some probiotics pre and post in order to ensure that you are getting your beneficial flora in there, that kind of thing. So it's not a, it's not static. It is dynamic. It's a good reminder for women to do those check-ins with themselves and see like what's been going on in their life and how is their microbiome because it is so important. You know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about fertility and when we're talking about women of reproductive years, they might be wanting to start a family. And we know that a woman's microbiome is going to influence the microbiome of her child pending that the child's born vaginally. So this is a mm-hmm. really good opportunity for women to be working on their microbiome as their you know, preconception. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it's part of my preconception conversations with my patients is, you know, we start probiotics before they're even thinking about, um, before they're actively trying to conceive, mm-hmm. I start because it takes time to modify that gut flora. So yeah, it's definitely something to consider throughout, you know, a number of, of phases of life, even postmenopausally. I think it's important that women are still focusing on their microbiome because as those studies indicate, there is um, some negative consequences in, a, in postmenopause. It, when there's dysbiosis or imbalance. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I also want to clarify for some listeners who might be confused. When we talk about the microbiome, we're talking about everything from in our oral cavity right down out through essentially our vagina or rectum. Like we're talking the entire internal system, the bacteria that's lying there is part of the microbiome, not just like the gut region. Exactly. Yeah, it starts in the mouth. And I've seen dysbiosis in the mouth before. It comes, you know, it often will show as like a sore tongue or mouth ulcers, but odor, like a very offensive odor. Yeah. Yep. Odor. But yeah, I remember I was listening to a microbiome um, continuing education lecture, and the speaker was talking about having taking oral probiotics and having an effect on on vaginal flora. And at the time I just couldn't connect, you know, we're taking this orally and it's moving from the mouth through the stomach, small intestine, large intestine, out the rectum. How is this affecting the vaginal flora, right? You take an oral women's probiotic for yeast infections and I just couldn't connect those dots. And then, you know, so I asked the question and the speaker said, well, because of the proximity of those two orifices, there's just transit between between them. So yes, your body, your skin is communicating. We have a bacteria in our microbiome, even on our skin. So I would say even to those women that are thinking about, or you know, may have a C-section, it's not a bad idea because you have bacteria even on the surface of your skin. And that's actually through the surface of the skin is how we can repopulate with the vaginal flora with good bacteria by taking an oral probiotic. So it's kind of a connection that I hadn't made as a student. And then I, I, you know, I finally kind of got my answers and I was, it seems obvious now, but at the time it just didn't seem obvious that we would be taking an oral probiotic for a urinary tract infection because those things aren't directly, you know, the same tube. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
No, it's a, it's a great point because there's a lot of patients that I have to explain that connection and I have to do my due diligence to educate them to make sure that they understand that that's what we're working on because it's not something that you think about. You think like, no, that must be separate. It's a separate system in my body. But mm -hmm. our bodies all work together, right? And they're all connected and it's a really good example. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. So those were all, you know, the questions that I had. Is there anything else you would like to share perhaps on this topic that we haven't talked about? I think we covered a lot. I would just say eat fiber. Yes. <laughs> As a fiber, fiber, fiber. <laughs> fiber, fiber, fiber. Remember that your microbiome is not static. It is dynamic. So it needs constant support and constant consideration. And um, generally probiotics can be safe, but if you are someone that does have a pre-existing health condition or has a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms, pain, you know, inconsistencies with the stool, it might not be a wise idea to start a probiotic right away without discussing what's going on um, first of all. But generally speaking, when you're looking at optimizing hormonal health, it is good a good idea to add in. Um, a probiotic because of that influence on the estrobilome and, and phase three estrogen detoxification. And would you agree that, you know, if somebody's going to react to a probiotic, it's going to happen pretty instantaneously to when they begin starting them. And that can, might be a sign that they need to hold off and, and maybe not introduce that probiotic at this point in their treatment. Yes, I would say generally if there's going to be an adverse reaction, it will happen within a few days of starting a probiotic. Um, but I have seen some very rare situations where you know, patients have taken a probiotic, specifically something that has you know, a, a yeast strain called Saccharomyces boulardii, mm -hmm. which is good for traveler's diarrhea. But anyway, I've seen in that case specifically the problem developed later on. So that would be pretty rare. Generally, I would say if it's going to be a problem, it will happen early. And that's an indicator that you might be dealing with a larger issue of the gastrointestinal system. So um, save them. Don't throw them out. They'll likely be useful, but speak to somebody about what's going on. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Dr. Spark, thank you so much for this amazing interview. You have given us so much to think about. And I love that we, we spoke so deeply about research because that is a part that's really important when we're talking about alternative health and when we're talking about natural health products. It's really important to have like kind of that, those critical lens when we're looking at, okay, like what is actually shown to be helpful in these conditions. So thank you for that. That was fantastic. And for our listeners who may want to reach out to you, what is the best way that they can do that? Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I am online on Instagram and Facebook as Dr. Kristen with an I, Spark, like spark plug. <laughs> and um, I have a website. It's just kristenspark.com. So you can find me there as well. And I'm hoping we can put in some of the show notes. I'm created a awesome sort of step-by-step -step foundations of gut health program. So it's something that um, I'm offering for free and it walks you through some of the information that we've talked about here today, but um, also some of my tools that I use in practice to really help optimize gut health and um, get that microbiome moving in the right direction. Fabulous. That is going to be so important for a lot of women. And I can definitely see a lot of listeners taking advantage of that because gut health is a big topic and having someone navigate like how to start and step-by-step step what to do is 
a gift. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so you can be notified of all future episodes. And don't forget to check out the show notes for all guest details and your free downloadable goodies. Your feedback is important to me, so please, please leave a review so women can find and be empowered by this knowledge. If you have a topic you'd like to see discussed on the show or have a recommendation for guests you'd like to see interviewed, please get in touch by emailing the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast at gmail.com. <laughs>